The National Film Board of Canada. As a film student studying media arts at Ryerson University, films from the NFB were a staple of our viewing repertoire. All of Norman McLaren's animation, including the award-winning Neighbors, Cordell Barker's The Cat Came Back, Richard Condy's The Big Snit, Sheldon Cohen's The Sweater, and as I transitioned into computer animation myself, the NFB moved into CGI as well, with short films like the groundbreaking Ryan from Chris Landreth. One of the most innovative and disruptive animators at the NFB was Colin Lowe, whose groundbreaking career with the NFB spanned over six decades with over 200 films. He passed away earlier this week at the age of 89. His films included one of my all-time personal favorite cartoons, The Romance of Transportation in Canada, which was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Animated Short in 1952. The romance of Canadian transportation began in the 16th century when the first explorers set foot on our then unknown continent. The NFB has put this film online for free, and it's very tongue-in-cheek and a delight to watch and revisit for me. Uh, The links are in the show notes. The film Universe was co-directed by Colin with Roman Kroitor, which inspired Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Colin's work on the multi-screen Expo 67 production Labyrinth led to the creation of Canada's giant screen IMAX format. Always at the lead of innovation, he co-directed the film Transitions, the first 3D and computer animated IMAX production for Expo 86, and Momentum, the first 48 frame per second IMAX HD film for Expo 92. Now I wonder what Mr. Lowe would think of the work being done at the NFB interactive divisions across Canada today. I'm certain he's an inspiration to the team. But let's find out about some of the work that's being done in immersive, virtual reality, and experimental film and animation at the NFB on today's episode of The Animator's Guide to Virtual Reality. Welcome, everybody, to The Animator's Guide to Virtual Reality. I am very, very thrilled to have our guest on today. Vincent McCurley is with the National Film Board of Canada. And the, you know what? I'm going to bring Vince in. Vince, hello. How are you? Hey, Rick. How's it going? The reason I'm bringing you in is it's, 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 this is, this is, a lot of things have been going on this week. It's been a very busy, very exciting week, and a lot of, a lot of news has been happening uh, with the NFB and, um, and work that you've been doing. And I just want to make sure I get your, get your title right now exactly. Now, I've, I've got your bio here, but how, how, do, how, how do we describe the work you do? What's your title at the National Film Board, Vincent? I guess I kind of refer to myself as a creative technologist, so trying to work with artists and filmmakers and and bridge them into technology and seeing how we can use technology as a storytelling platform. And um, I just want to say thanks for that amazing tribute to Colin Lowe. He's uh, definitely one of the pioneers and innovators of uh, of the NFB and film. And uh, our animation department out in Montreal is still doing some amazing and innovative work, and I definitely need to connect you with... uh, our like tech director Alwa Champagne, who is just an amazing, um, knowledgeable person when it comes into the field of pure animation. Yep. But uh, my work deals a little bit more with kind of the interactive elements. But we're both doing virtual reality. So exactly. And so you so you understand like even you know looking at your bio and trying to decide you know what to call the work you've done. And it's interesting actually. Um, I can't really say you're the VR uh, guy at the NFB because your, your career in virtual reality is actually kind of short <laughs> yeah i'd say it's probably about eight months long <laughs> <laughs> um so as a creative technologist part of my job is to 
is to be the bridge of, of uh, technology to these storytellers and really identify what technology would make a great storytelling platform. And about eight months ago, we saw this kind of giant wave of VR coming with kind of Facebook buying Oculus. And it seemed like it was a real possible platform to tell story on. And so I knew coming down the line that I'd probably be responsible for understanding VR. And I really didn't know much about it. So uh, I asked the head of our studio to uh, carve out a little bit of time to understand VR and and so uh, I've been working on a project to understand VR, and we've been traveling with it to various festivals and conferences and learning a lot. Tell me a little bit. We're gonna, actually, I want to back up just a wee bit. Just We have a lot of listeners from outside of Canada, and I'm sure they all know of the National Film Board of Canada. Um, but if you could just take a minute to explain uh, on a very high level what the NFB is, what its mandate is. Again, just speak generally. Um, and in particular... Um, it's 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 uh, response or or, or it's it's uh, what how it deals with innovation and, and and new technology. If you could just give a, a very high level understanding of what the NFB is for for Canadians and uh, what it's supposed to do to promote uh, animated film or film in Canada. For sure. So the National Film Board of Canada is a government agency of Canada. It's um, an arm of Heritage Canada, and so its mandate is to. Uh, tell stories that kind of reflect Canadian ideals uh, to Canadians and also tell stories that are kind of socially relevant um, to Canadians or from a Canadian point of view. And so I guess we're probably most well-known for our documentaries and film. Uh, we've also got a fantastic history in animation, auteur animation. And uh, back in 2010, uh, we founded two interactive studios, one in Montreal and one in Vancouver, where we were exploring uh, storytelling and interactive medium. So interactive documentary on the web or mobile, tablet devices, and now virtual reality. So it's relatively, relatively new to the... Uh to the repertoire of what the NFB does is the interactive division. And there's been some, a number of, of projects that, uh, that I've actually been, been very intimately aware of, uh, projects that I have experienced as a consumer. Um, in particular, uh, there, there, there were a couple that you actually uh, touched on. So it's kind of interesting that we're here talking together. Um, there were a number of films. Uh, let me just bring up the list. But, but ones in particular, anyway, and you can jump in on some of the work you've done as well. Uh, Bear 71. Oh, yeah, that was a, a fantastic project for us. Um, so that was a project where we were looking at the intersection of kind of technology and wildlife and surveillance. It was about a, a grizzly bear in Banff National Park. And we had collected all this amazing trail cam footage, and the uh, park rangers had a, a collar on the Bear 71 and was kind of tracking her uh, her passage through Banff National Park. And so we had this great history of what she was doing, her encounters with uh, humans and technology. And so we created this interactive documentary uh, for the web, so through the browser, that uh, I got, I guess it was a pretty compelling story. And so it, it got uh, quite a lot of attention. It, yeah, I'm actually going to interrupt because that's actually a really good point. I think it's interesting that it was treated as as, 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 a, different, as a story and for, told from the point of view of the bear. <laughs> and uh, we have her voice and it was, it, the narration was just just engrossing. I was really drawn in from the moment I heard the narration speak until when I made the connection that this is actually the bear speaking. It was really wonderful. And yeah, it was a real incredible hybrid 
that I hadn't seen before of uh, live action and animation and just this browser-based experience that, again, I hadn't really seen before. Yeah, we um, kind of pulled a lot of different uh, types of media. And that's the great thing with interactive is that you can pull from film, you can pull from audio, and you can pull from gaming and social media interaction and all these elements. And really, you have all these tools to tell an amazing story. And so you're really looking at how do we best use this technology to tell the story? Because some stories, honestly, they're best told in a film format or they're best told in animation. And we're always asking ourselves these questions when kind of these story ideas uh, come to us. We're like, is, is this really best told through an interactive medium? Because um, that's what our studio kind of does. Um, and if this story is best told through film, then we'll, we'll pass it over to one of our film studios. That's actually really interesting that you do. There's a there's a culling process or a um, where we have to t- you take a look at the story ideas and, and you don't you don't go in to make an interactive film. You you you've got a number of ideas and you pick the best one that's going to fit the the medium. And we'll get into how even more into into VR, how there's definitely some films that don't work in that. And hopefully I'll have time for that. There was one other project that that I that I uh, found very interesting from my background working at Disney when we were doing um, lighting and sound uh, design for the parades at Disney World, where um, the the. The, the content would change depending on where the parade was in the park or depend on where you were in the park. You would hear different parts of the parade, but always synced up. And there's something about the, the, the last hunt a project that you worked on that to me felt almost like a parade in a way. And it's interesting. I use the analogy of a parade. I don't know if anybody explained it as a parade, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but I saw actually how I kind of felt, how I, w- I would use the browser and move through the story and the music when it when it triggered different sound effects and different um, effects um, as you scrolled through the story, and it, it always stayed in sync with where you were, and you can almost scrub it and go backwards and and forwards again, and and um, I just found that was a an interesting precursor, and that's what really got me thinking about interactive storytelling. That that particular project, The Last Hunt. Um, yeah, the last one is definitely one I'm I'm very intimately knowledgeable, yeah. knowledgeable with. Uh, spent probably about three years on that project, but uh, yeah, that's one where kind of the interactive nature of the the stories that we're telling, we have to kind of create ways to deal with the fact that we really don't know what the audience is going to do within the project. They might take two minutes to get through the entire project, or they might spend twenty minutes. So for things like soundtracks, we have to consider kind of dynamically adaptable soundtracks to be able to ensure that it's always relevant to wherever the audience is at that particular moment in time. And it's uh, something that the game industry has been doing um, really well with, being able to create dynamic audio, but um, hasn't been done too much in interactive documentary or, um, I guess, non-linear uh, filmmaking. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's something, again, we're at this point of, of this kind of big mashup of, of gaming and film and, and traditional media into VR. So it's, it's really exciting. You mentioned uh, gaming. Uh, there's actually, there's a huge gaming scene in BC and I just wanted to just take a minute and just sort of, uh, I don't know if I actually introduced you properly. You're, 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 whereabouts in BC are you? <laughs> so I'm located in Vancouver. You're actually uh, in Vancouver. 
I'm in Vancouver, and yeah, it's it's a fantastic hub here where we've got kind of the Hollywood North film industry. We've got an incredible VFX industry, probably thanks to tax credits. <laughs> uh, we've got um... no, 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 no. You know, <laughs> well, I, I actually can say with with Con, I, I worked in BC a few summers ago, and I was uh, at uh, Method Studios, and I have never worked with. Uh, more dedicated and talented and creative people. So it, it's not, it, there's definitely the tax credit, but uh, I, I, I have been, I continue to be blown away with the, the quality of the talent and the community uh, out, in, out in Vancouver that supports uh, visual effects and sort of alternative ways of storytelling. So I'm actually going to prop you up a little higher than that. <laughs> but go on, oh, sorry yeah. to interrupt you. I'm not, the only thing to complain about in Vancouver is the real estate, but everything else is fantastic. Oh, um, <laughs> we've also got uh, a great gaming industry. So we've got EA out here, and it's yep. um, kind of spawned all these kind of indie uh, development shops as well. Um, we've got great kind of tech hub, and there's a big startup community. So it's kind of this this wonderful mix of all these technologies that uh, that are now kind of coming together and are primed to to kind of fuel VR. So um, it's it's really exciting. There's a lot of buzz behind VR in the Vancouver kind of meetups and communities that are um, kind of the the tech world within Vancouver. Tell me a little bit more about that. We're actually very fortunate to, to get you on the show because you've been busy with sort of doing uh, little road trips and, and dog and pony shows. I mean, <laughs> demos. I mean, you've been very, very busy. Uh, tell me about some of the audiences that you've been talking to and, and who are some of the people that are, that are attending your events. Yeah, well, I just um, finished giving a presentation at the Van VR talk series um, where they've been I guess over a series of six talks talking about all the various aspects of VR through um, everything from business to capturing, um, modeling, texturing, animation. And most uh, recently, just on Thursday, it was on interactivity. So I gave a talk on um, interactive design within virtual reality as it pertained to uh, Cardboard Crash, the project I was working on. And, uh, and yeah, we've got an incredible wide range of people showing up to that event. So everything from traditional user interface designers, graphic designers, to a lot of people working in games, to people working in the medical industry, to um, the universities and working in kind of stereoscopic research and VR and augmented reality and motion capture. Uh, we have people coming from film and there's, we actually have Vancouver Film School here. So there's this great Mm-hmm. hub of uh, student talent up and coming. So there are a lot of students and um, yeah, it's a really diverse crowd. And um, this particular event, actually I noticed that it was quite uh, diverse, not only in the the type of things people are doing, but um, it was also kind of culturally, di- culturally diverse, but also gender diverse, which was kind ah. of a, a first uh, <laughs> in a lot of these VR meetups. It tends to be kind of middle-aged men, um, talking about how great VR was in the 80s. So, <laughs> guilty, sorry. <laughs> I'm guilty too, so it's all good. But um, yeah, I think uh, talking about design and um, I guess a bit more of the, the arts of VR mm-hmm. uh, brought in definitely a, a nice mix. So it was, it was cool to see. That is very, very interesting. And I have actually noted that already that I, I, I am reaching out to, uh, sort of broaden the scope of the, of the people that bring, we bring onto this show. Um, cause that, that is when it, when things really start to take off is when you uh, get outside of the comfort zone. And right now, the comfort zone for VR is kind of this, this, uh, this, uh, male tech, probably in the gaming business kind of a, a community and uh, it, when, when things start to really uh, explode and they certainly do in animation where we have um, 
layout artists and just just you get this other other perspective on things that um there is it's just different and right now there's there's, there's not too much different going on we're, we're still trying to sort out the look and feel and we're starting to see some glimmers of of innovation in interactive animation but we're still we're struggling we're struggling with uh sort of how we pull this off and the technology uh, you know trying to oh, find definitely. some sort of standard I think everyone's still kind of pulling from what they know. So yeah. the filmmakers are trying to shove film into VR and the, the game makers are trying to film game, shove games into VR. Yeah. And eventually we're going to get to a point where everyone's kind of comfortable with it and are trying to explore what, what truly works in VR, what's unique about VR. So, um, yeah, it's good to have a lot of different perspectives on that. And one of the things we're doing at our uh, interactive digital studio here in Vancouver is we're running this VR lab, this little NFB VR lab where we have a few different VR projects kind of tackling VR from very different points of view and um, different creators. Uh, you've, I've got to hook you up with um, Paisley Smith, who's one of the uh, creators on one of the projects, and she takes a very, very amazing um, approach that I would have kind of never approached, just a different mindset coming from um, kind of a different background. So she brings a lot of uh, powerful storytelling to it. Um, so it's uh, we're, we're trying to work with a lot of different types of creators in order to try to really figure out what works in VR. And right now it's kind of the, the shotgun approach, right? We're just trying as many things as possible and trying to fail as quickly as possible. That's a very iterative, very agile way of putting it. That actually is totally appropriate considering the tech community there. Um, and, and actually it's also what you said if, if you think about the mandate of the National Film Board, how it uh, operates as a support system for animators, and we do try new things here at the NFB, um, this is just an extension of that, really. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it is a kind of a nice nice mix. It, we're in this early phase of VR where mm. experimentation is is going to be really valuable in understanding. Yeah, absolutely, we haven't kind of gone into our set formats it's like. We soon we'll be locked into our traditional like 20 minutes with 10 minutes of commercials or something. So it's, it's a fun time right now where we don't have to deal with that, where we can just experiment in, in really amazing creative works and kind of up. Yeah, that's right. And the NFB has maintained its integrity in terms of, well, forgive that word, but I mean, my point is it's not tied into corporate. Uh, it does its own thing. And uh, in terms of certain technology or certain corporations or certain bias, um, the NFB has always really paved its own path. Um, even yeah. so, even some of the corporate, when you look at sort of the development of IMAX <laughs> as an example, I mean, that was, you know, you get some really brilliant people, uh, mess, you know, putting together some incredible new technology. And the National Film Board isn't really geared to rent a commercial enterprise. And forgive me if I'm being too, too, you know, general here, but the NFB okay. isn't there to make money. And, and again, forgive me. But the point is, they developed this incredible IMAX technology, and then it kind of went on to become to become a corporate thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, I don't know how much, how much you can comment on that, but my point of that is, is, is this this is probably the most critical time for our listeners to see what's going on in interactive, and to maybe check in and see what the NFB is doing. For sure, one one of the amazing things about working with the NFB is that um, we're not necessarily tied to to uh, a corporate agenda. So yeah. our projects may not make a lot. Of, we, we don't have to go into a project thinking, okay, we need to make a lot of money on this project. Otherwise the organization is going to fail. Um, we can really take the approach of 
let's tell an amazing story and figure out how to tell it. So it's really story first. And we can tell stories um, that no one else would really tell. Like in, there's some remote communities up north that would really not have the ability to tell any stories um, to a wide audience where the NFB can say, okay, this is really important for Canadians, so let's go up there, we'll spend the money. Even if we're not turning out a profit, we think there's a, a social a social profit um, to all of Canadians. So it's, it's really uh, a luxury to be able to take that approach. Now, no one at the NFB is making making fistfuls of money. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. uh, so there's that that trade off of of trying to do something that's that's uh, kind of socially powerful, socially relevant. Um, but we we definitely work with tight budgets, and we try to stretch them out the best we can. You know, going back to the work of Colin Lowe, I there was there was a project that wasn't animated, but again, he as a, as an NFB director, it was called Challenge for Change. Now, not a lot of people nowadays know about this one, but this happened around night in in the uh, around the centennial year. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, what Lowe was charged with doing was going out to very remote parts of the country. That's what triggered me remembering this out to Fogo Island, Newfoundland, and he oh, shot yeah. and he shot twenty seven short films to celebrate the centennial from Fogo Island, and like. I, I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't know anything about Fogo Island, but the NFB uh, funded this project and 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 pushed this project through, and it's it's part of the repertoire of what the NFB is. It's just these wonderful moments that no, you normally wouldn't know about. Yeah, absolutely. And and not only did they go to these remote places and and shoot um, amazing films, but they also used to like tour around with the projectionists, and you'd see projectionists like with all their gear in a boat kind of canoeing down the river to some remote um, village in order to show films so that someone over in the like northern BC would actually know about Fogo Island on the other side of Canada. So uh, there was this kind of big distribution uh, aspect of the NFB as well. But uh, yeah, things have definitely changed since since the internet has kind of made it mm. things more accessible. Mm-hmm. But we still have to consider that some of these places don't have the the best bandwidth connections and, and right. so on. So um, we still kind of try to make our content as accessible as possible to all Canadians, which is why uh, most of our stuff is free. Um, you can go to our website nfb.ca and watch hundreds of documentaries and animations and our interactive works all for free on there. So. Outstanding, and I do I do have a few selected. A few of, uh, a few of your projects are, are linked up on the show notes, and uh, the, the films that we're mentioning, the the ones that are online, I'm linking to all of them. Hey, listen, I wanted to come back to you though, and some of the innovative work that you're doing, and the project you just touched on a moment ago was Cardboard Crash. Now, <laughs> I'm going to play a clip from this, and it'll set it up, and maybe or maybe it'll confuse people. I don't know, but when we come back, I want you to explain a little bit about the film and the process that went into that. Okay? Cool. Would you like to begin your trip? Thank you for letting Automobiles Autonomous do the driving for you. Sit back and relax as we drive you home. Please buckle up. Unavoidable collision detected. Please select a course of action. Veer left and collide with family? Drive straight into semi-trailer truck? Veer right and fall off cliff? All right, Vincent, Cardboard Crash, we just heard a clip from. <laughs> tell us a little bit about the project. How did it come about? And tell us what we're listening to. 
Right. So uh, about eight months ago, um, again, I didn't know anything about VR. And so I asked for a project to kind of quickly iterate through the entire production process of VR. So everything from ideation to storyboarding to modeling and texturing and rigging and animation and sound design and programming and getting it on devices and just onto the app stores. Uh, really, I needed to understand that entire production workflow so that I could then turn around and help other artists be able to do the same thing. So this was kind of like a tech experiment as it started off. And so um, we knew we wanted to learn as much as possible on this tech experiment. And so we started taking this kind of iterative approach where we would build it and then kind of test it out on as many people as possible. And so we learned a whole ton of stuff about what to do, what not to do. But when I was ideating on the story, I was I was asking the question, like, what makes VR fundamentally different than film? Like, what, what is it about VR that is unique? And I wanted to kind of jump on that aspect you know, for the story. And so I took a poll around the office of all the people that had done VR, and the responses were like, oh, it's awesome, you feel like you're there, um, it's so cool. And then I was getting responses like, oh, I'm feeling a little dizzy. I should probably go lie down and I need a bucket. So from that, I uh, got the idea of, hey, I think the most powerful aspect of VR is nausea. So how can I use nausea as a way to enhance the story where it'd be okay for someone to kind of walk away from the experience and feeling a little sick, but that would actually enhance it. And so... Uh, I contextualize this by saying, okay, what if we were in a crash? And if you're in a car crash, then walking away from it, if you felt disoriented, then, hey, that, that's a great experience um, I, as it pertained to the story. <laughs> so uh, so then I came up with this initial idea of having like a PSA with distracted driving so your cell phone would go off and you'd look at it and then you'd look back up and you'd get in a crash. But what was troublesome was that your sense of presence, if when you feel like you're in a car, you see a steering wheel in front of you and you automatically feel like, okay, I should grab the steer, steering wheel and start driving. But of course, there are no, there's no steering wheel to grab when you have the VR headset on. So I needed to contextualize the fact that you couldn't grab a steering wheel. So the whole idea of the self-driving car kind of came up. And then like, why would a self-driving car get into an accident and, and so on? So I was really trying to identify what the constraints of the technology were in order to design the story around it. And um, I use this principle quite a lot in the, the story development and the actual development of the app. Wherever I kind of hit a hurdle, whether it be my own uh, skill level or my own artistic ability, I would kind of design the story around that particular roadblock. So Cardboard Crash looks at the ethics of artificial intelligence in self-driving cars. And basically the way it's, it's set up is that you enter the experience and you're in a car and you start looking around there's no steering wheel and so you start identifying that uh, hey this is a self-driving car there's some branding there the company name is uh, automobiles autonomous Mm -hmm. (laughs) is the name so it's like it's (laughs) suggesting that hey there's it's a self-driving car and you're looking around and you're seeing that it's all made of this cardboard world so you look next to you and there's this little cardboard child sitting in a cardboard car seat and we're pulling away from a cardboard school and uh, you're driving down the roads and some tunes pop up. Um, there's this Siri voice, which uh, asks you, hey, do you want to start your drive? And so as you start driving, you're going through this kind of winding mountainside road. 
um, that's next to a cliff, which was inspired by the Sea to Sky Highway here in British Columbia. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so you're driving through, and then this unavoidable crash situation kind of pops up in front of you. A child runs out onto the road yep. chasing a dog. Yep. There's a, a giant tractor trailer that yep. has veered out of the way of the child and is veered right into your own lane, and you have to make a decision. And so it slows down into bullet time, and to give you a chance to make this decision, do you turn right and there's a family on the sidewalk, which you would collide with? Do you go straight, try to brake and go straight into the truck? Or do you go right off the cliff into the icy waters below? And so we ask the audience to make this decision. And we're using VR sense of presence to make them feel like, oh my gosh, if I was in this situation, what would I do? Would, would self-preservation come into play? Like, what would happen? And so we asked them to make that decision. And then immediately after they made that decision, we kind of pulled them out into the network. And all of a sudden, they've kind of been pulled through the network onto a sensor on the network, which is at a lighthouse. That gives them a side view of the situation. Right. And then this is data visualization plays out of the potential consequences of their actions. So you see... If they had chosen to drive into the truck, you'd see uh, like a little hologram of the car driving into the truck, and you'd see this mushroom cloud kind of appear as the truck explodes. Um, you see the car driving off the cliff and what would happen and how far it would fall. And meanwhile, the uh, Siri-like voice is giving you information about the, the probability of survival and the consequences and the effect on the nearby town. Then we pull you up into the drone sensor, which is flying up above the... Um, the collision, and it gives you kind of the top view of the potential consequences, the environmental damage, and so it's, it's throwing all this data at you. And then finally, it brings you back into the car and asks the audience to make the decision again. So now that you have all this additional data, mm. what would you do? And what we're doing there is, or what I'm hoping comes across in the piece, is the fact that the first time you ask the decision, the VR sense of presence is making you feel like you're in the car and you're making a decision based off of self-preservation and possibly the preservation of your passenger and the people around you. But when we pull you out into the network, we want you to realize that, hey, you've actually never been in the car. You are actually the artificial intelligence algorithm that's been driving the car. And so now you get to jump on the network, look at all these sensors to pull additional data about a potential collision in order to make a more informed decision, similar to what an actual artificial intelligence system could do, because these computers are all going to be network connected. And so they're going to be able to access data like our insurance policies, our age, our occupation, our um, our social media profiles, right? So I want people to start questioning whether or not these data sets, whether it's ethical to use them in these potential calculations, or if it's ethical not to use that data, if it is available. And then at the end of the day, all these artificial intelligence algorithms are being designed and programmed by humans. And humans have biases. And if it's a uh, corporation or an insurance company designing the algorithm, it's going to have a certain bias. If it's a government, it's going to be a certain bias. If it's a different government from a different country, they're going to have different ethics. Like ethics vary between people and Ethics even vary between like whether or not I've had breakfast in the morning or not, right? If if I've had breakfast, then I might feel awesome. It's like, okay, I've had a great life. Let's sacrifice myself. If I haven't had breakfast, then I'm like, oh, crush the family. I'm feeling feeling really angry, hangry today. So 
it's a, it's a complex issue that I hope people start talking about before the corporations just kind of steamroll their own agendas. So that's kind of the, the essence of what cardboard crash is. How can somebody experience this? Is this something that's rigged up to work on, say, on a home device right now, or do we have to experience this at the NFB? Um, okay, so the project has gone through a few iterations. I started building mm-hmm. it in Unreal Engine, and so that was tied to the Oculus Rift uh, DK2. But then partway through the project, uh, we decided that we wanted this thing to work on Google Cardboard uh, in order to reach a wider audience. And so my programming ability in Unreal Engine is, is pretty poor. Um, it was actually easier for me to port the entire thing over to Unity and use yeah. Google Cardboard's little dev kit for, uh, for cardboard integration. Mm-hmm. And so I, it's, I rebuilt the project in Unity. And oh, so wow. now it works in uh, Google Cardboard. It works in the Samsung Gear VR as well as the Oculus Rift. And as soon as we get our HTC Vive, we'll be uh, porting it to that as well. That's so great. it's it's definitely multi-platform. It's something that uh, is one of the priorities of our studio, trying to distribute it to as many Canadians or people as possible. Exactly. Uh, I'm going to bounce back and forth between sort of the tech and the story, but back to the story a wee bit. Was there any? Uh, did you find any problems or challenges going from um, in, in the VR experience from the user's point of view? And then zooming up to those drone views or the bird's eye view from the lighthouse and zooming back in. Is there anything that surprised you or that you learned about that process? Or Yeah, normally I wouldn't recommend kind of shifting your point of view that drastically hmm. but uh, because it can be quite disorienting. But for the purposes of the story, uh, it was important to kind of pull the user out of their sense of presence of being in the car and by pulling them out of it, um, we're hoping that they're like, oh, what the heck's going on? Like, why can I see this collision from a different point of view? And so we're hoping that then triggers the idea of, hey, I've, I'm, I'm this kind of other being. I'm actually the computer, the artificial intelligence. So I don't actually have a physical entity um, within or physical presence within this space because I'm just a computer program. So we're, we're trying to – we actually use VR sense of presence to uh, – to make the audience assume one thing and then kind of reveal something else to them, at least their agency within the uh, within the piece. So we're really uh, we're, we're using filmmaker conventions in a way. The whole notion of an establishing shot or or, or this high up shot. We're we're still playing with sort of what works in film and seeing if it works in VR. I mean, was that what was the uh, the sickness vomit quotient on when you were developing this this, this project was it high or was it not I, there? What do you think? Our first builds were probably like fifty percent of the people got got sick. Oh. Was, <laughs> I'm sorry I asked, but I'm just kind of curious. <laughs> no problem. Um, and then uh, by user testing it at uh, various conferences, we went mm-hmm. to like SIGGRAPH and Vancouver International Film Festival and ICEA and right. uh, IDFA and, and just most recently Sundance. By user testing it, we were able to get a lot of data as to, okay, if we slow down the amount of acceleration um, and the speed and the curvature of the, the turns within the, the, the project, then those can all help reduce that feeling of nausea. So we're probably down to about 95% of people, like, just throw the headset away as we, <laughs> as they start feeling sick, which I think is acceptable seeing as our kind of 
Sorry, ninety-five percent people throw it away because they're sick. No, <laughs> sorry, I, I probably said that backwards. I think so. Uh, <laughs> That's yeah. not good, Vincent. <laughs> You've got to well, go back to the drawing board. <laughs> remember that the fundamental tenant of the project was to cause nausea. But yeah. no, I think um, five, about five percent of the people are now um, are now uh, experiencing a bit of sickness, and yeah. uh, we could probably get that down lower, uh, but. A bit of queasiness, I think, is is okay. That's what you said. It almost feeds into the story in a way. And it's interesting you break up another really interesting point that that I think people need to really consider is the whole notion of an iterative, iterative film or an, an iterative project. The fact that you're able to release a project and tweak it, and it just it's like software in a way. It, it, the film actually goes through these iterations that's something that as an animator certainly in animation you would you would never you would never experience something like that yeah this this is definitely not the way we normally do things at the <laughs> um, I think it's pretty unique to this project just because it was kind of an experiment and um, mm. one of its goals was to learn as much as possible as quickly mm. as possible that's true uh, because with with animation um, just like with a lot of software design, once you start that production process, it, it's pretty costly to make a, a change in the later stages. So we definitely want to kind of plan things out and get things fixed before entering full production. But because this was just a, a small project, um, it's, it was able to kind of go through this rapid iteration cycle. Um, but I, I got to tell you, as the kind of the sole programmer and kind of main artist on this, mm-hmm. it was terrifying presenting unfinished work <laughs> to live audiences. But uh, we weighed that out with, with what we learned from all the user feedback, uh, which I think is much more beneficial in the long term, and my, my ego can take a hit. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, though. You, you, it, it, you're, tell, tell me a little bit about your background, because you're using words like ideation and iterations pretty, pretty fluidly, and I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't like an animator that I know. Tell me about your background. <laughs> okay, so um, I graduated from the University of British Columbia in mechanical engineering, so it's kind of a, a weird start. But um, when I graduated, which was around 2000, the whole dot-com boom thing was like, oh my gosh, i got to be part of this. So I abandoned mechanical engineering and started a web design development company with my roommates at university at the time. And so... We got into web development, and through that, I lear- started learning programming and design and kind of user, user interface, um, and really got into Flash development. And Flash was an awesome program in that it was this wonderful combination of kind of art and animation and music, but you could combine it very easily with programming. And that program kind of pulled me into the programming world. Um, I, I learned programming through Flash. And through that, I got a pretty good understanding of both the art side as well as the, the programming and technical side. And I was able to kind of bring that to the NFB when they started uh, opening up shop back in 2010. Yeah. They were doing a lot of their interactive documentaries in Flash because it was such a great way to combine like video and audio and interactivity. And you could really create these unique interactive documentary experiences that that really no other medium could. Was Bear 71 Flash? Yes, it was. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. An amazing team built that. Uh, Jam 3, they're actually out in your neck of the woods. They're uh, a development studio out there. Um, they did the, the bulk of the, the programming for Bear 71. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, a lot of our projects, like Waterlife and 
uh, welcome to Pine Point. So a lot of the interactive projects. Mm-hmm. Now we're we're moving into um, doing a lot of our projects with HTML5 as well now, and of course we're looking at Unity and Unreal Engine. Sure, uh, we still use Air, which is kind of a yep. Flash way of porting out to uh, devices. So um, we're, we're trying to be as technology agnostic as possible, just really identifying which is the best platform to tell a particular story. Do you still use Flash, but use the HTML5 exporter, or is Flash not so much an authoring <laughs> tool anymore? I use Flash all the time. Um, in fact, the all the animations, like the dashboard animations within Cardboard Crash, all mm-hmm. the UI elements, mm-hmm. those were all created in Flash and then um, imported into Unity using a, a Swift converter. And that workflow, at least for me, was way faster than trying to animate all these elements within Unity or within Unreal. Um, just the the Flash timeline is just a lot quicker to work in and integrating in audio and all those elements. Yep. So, um, yeah, I still still use Flash quite a lot. I think um, for what it does, and in particular kind of elements of storytelling, it can be really good. Uh, I, it does get a bad name, but I think it's uh, undeserved. But that's why cool. they changed the name. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's, it's called uh, Animate now. Called Animate, and so hopefully they'll actually add some some uh, better animating tools in there. Yeah. I didn't want to put you on the spot, but I, a lot of our listeners, our students, are or and just the mandate of the show is sort of the animator's guide to virtual reality. So it's all about teaching and learning. So my point wasn't to put you on the spot because I know Flash is kind of a, something that we kind of like we hide from sometimes like we all use flash but i mean it's got this bad rep in the in the business that's somewhat deserved but it also does some things really really well and i just my point of bringing it up was uh from you know from your perspective as a as a working professional animator and and, and technologist in the business um what are some of the tools that that animators maybe the, they're thinking about going into school to learn animation or maybe they're in school now and as you know a lot of schools, their, their timelines are a few years sort of behind the trend. So the students have to step up and learn stuff that's just coming out now that won't be in the curriculum for another two or three years. And that's not a diss on schools. That's just how it works. Yeah, I, well, I totally understand. I I did teach at uh, UBC in their uh, multimedia program for quite a few years. So mm. I'm, uh, I'm quite aware of <laughs> how education can, can lag sometimes behind what's actually happening in industry. Um, I, I used to like Flash as an animating tool. I haven't really played with Toon Boom that much just because whenever I have animation, it's usually in some sort of interactive format requirement. Yeah. So I need it in that, uh, that type of format. But um, in terms of kind of animation, the tool that I used the most for Cardboard Crash was actually Modo. Uh, it's, I've been trying to, I've been dabbling in 3D for quite a few years, but never getting really proficient at it. Mm-hmm. But um, Modo kind of made sense enough to my limited uh, brain power to be able mm-hmm. to figure out how to do the actual rigging and animating and all that stuff. Whereas when I try to get into it with Blender or Maya, um, it's I kind of hit a brick wall pretty quick. Oh, yeah. So um, I need I I kind of try to follow the Pareto principle for a lot of the things that I do. So like they say, eighty percent of the output can be created with twenty percent of the effort, but the the mm. last twenty yeah. percent is uh, it takes eighty percent of the the effort. So yeah, um, 
when it comes to like learning new software, if I if I can't get productive at it in a relatively short period of time, I, I usually look for an alternative solution. Yes. And um, Moto's just really worked for me really well. <clears throat> There's a couple of things about Moto that I really like. Um, it is visually very interesting to look at, and and you get a, a very quick grasp about what's happening. The interface is just a delight to work on it, and also too for game development and so for exporting to um, to Unity. Um, the exporter is is the import exporter in Moto for politi- polygon models is just incredibly state of the art. Sometimes I'll use it just if I get a, a file from a different format that uh, I can't read in whatever app I'm using. Uh, Moto will always read it and it'll always export it. And the other thing that's kind of nice about Moto is they have different versions. They have a, a version on Steam for um, for game developers, but I suspect it's going to become very popular for people wanting to model for VR. Um, it's it's a much cheaper version. I don't know the price exactly. It's sort of a monthly thing, but uh, it's a lot cheaper than buying it outright. And uh, it has just about all the features of the full version of Moto. So I'm saying this for the students out there that might want to uh, get get into 3D modeling. Yeah, they also got a great um, educational um, That's true too. option as well. And uh, yeah, it's 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 great for exporting out to both Unreal and Unity because I had to do both of those. Um, and also they just added a new stereoscopic camera, which makes exporting out to stereo 3D um, really easy. I just took some of my old scenes and started exporting them out, um, mm-hmm. and it, it works wonderfully. So, um, Does yeah. it have an Uber okay. camera, like a 360 camera render? Yeah, they just added it in, I guess, 902. So um, you basically set up your camera to be stereo and 360. And 360, right? And uh, and you you have some options for how you want it to be stereo. I think there's like an anaglyph option and right. um, like a side by side kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it's it's, it's nice that all of a sudden with an update now you can do VR stuff. So <laughs> now yeah, the reason I ask is we use uh, here at RDXYZ we do some modeling in Modo. We do a lot of our rendering in Lightwave, and Lightwave has the, the they call it an Uber camera, but it's it's that 360 camera that also supports stereoscopic. So we're trying to work on our workflow here as well. You know whatever works best. You know, but Modo is is actually really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I quite enjoyed it. Um, I, unfortunately, I didn't have the patience to uh, to dig into Maya. <laughs> oh, you know, I, which I think a lot of the students are actually like that's kind of the the go to in the industry, right? It uh, is, and it's interesting. Having been in the business as long as I have, I've seen the role of the generalist come and go in 3D, and the, this was something that was popular maybe eight or ten years ago, where you had a generalist where who could do the lighting and and rigging and 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 modeling, and that was considered. Um, good enough for most projects. And then uh, over the years, as projects became more complicated and Maya became uh, larger, um, you, you, you ran the roles of specialists. So you had your, your, your lighting, your shader guys and, and your, um, you know, uh, render pipeline people and, 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 and things and the scripters, the Python scripters and what have you. And then it, then it became the role of generalist went away, but now I'm actually seeing it come back uh, in VR where you sort of need to have the sensibility of, where the lights are and where the camera is and you know yeah absolutely i think it's you see these amazing bursts of creativity when uh the tools become accessible and impossible to use by smaller and smaller teams so it, it's awesome that we have unity and unreal engine um these amazingly powerful tools that 
honestly, a single person can create an entire VR project. It's, it's possible. Like it, the production quality is obviously going to be much better if you have a huge team. But once you get the tools powerful enough that a single person can do it, then you start getting like amazing ideas from these kind of creative, wacky minds. And this really, mm-hmm. I saw this happening uh, in Flash back in the like the 2000s. There was this just incredible burst of creativity of what you'd see on the web because you'd have people that weren't necessarily very technical, but able to create interactivity and just making just totally bizarre, wacky, but amazing things. And then once kind of, HTML5 got kind of more more prevalent as the oh don't use flash use HTML. You kind of this this creativity I feel is kind of um, diminished a bit because you really need a lot of technical ability to get anything kind of creative working in HTML5. Mm. And so now that we have tools like Unity and Unreal coming up and how they're they, they're so powerful, they can really give a person with a kind of a single creative vision, no matter how bizarre and complex it might be, they, they can actually put out their ideas. So I'm, I'm really, uh, I, I look for these tools that enable artists and creators to, to make things easily and quickly. Um, because that's really where the burst of creativity in our culture comes from. What's next. What's coming up with you next or what's coming up next at the NFB. Oh, wow. Well, we have our VR lab, so I'll be helping um, the various VR creators uh, and with their projects, turning around and hoping to uh, use everything, all the painful knowledge I gleaned from Cardboard Crash. <laughs> um, well, I'll probably be trying to finish off Cardboard Crash. It's been in this kind of beta format, but uh, I think we've finally got enough user feedback that we can kind of tweak it and actually put it out as a, a final release. Um, it is available as beta on both the iOS and Google Play stores right now, but uh, we will be releasing a, a more uh, refined version. Um, and yeah, and we're constantly working on other projects that aren't VR, so a lot of our interactive documentaries and animations as well as installations that uh, that we have going on. So that's that's kind of where I'll be at for the next little while. Incredible. Um, Vincent, we've gone a little long. I, I appreciate you staying with me, though. Um, how can people? Oh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> how can people get in touch with you? Uh, Twitter or email or how do people get in touch with you? Cool. Um, sure. Uh, my email is at the NFB is v dot at nfb.ca, and I guess I'm probably more active on Twitter than mm-hmm. any other social media. So it's just at v McCurley. So v m c c u r l e y. That's excellent. That's just awesome. I'd love to have you back. And you've actually, yeah, I'll let you know the other people that you've invited on my show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll get some more NFB, sure. uh, people coming in and talking about the work that they've done. But Vincent, it has been uh, an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And I know the listeners are, um, absolutely, uh, engrossed in the work that you've done and, and uh, really appreciate the time that you've, you've taken to share your work with us because, like I say, we're, this is all a learning experience. We're all trying to learn from each other, and it's nice that there's one place where you know we can you know sort of get a sort of a look at sort of everything that's going on and, and everything. And uh, we really appreciate you being a part of this uh, of this culture that we're trying to this community that we're trying to build here. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Rick, for uh, running this podcast. I think you've it's got it. Awesome that uh, it's basically this this way for people to share knowledge, and the more we share, the the faster we'll grow with it. So uh, thank you.
I think so. And I uh, just wanted a little tease for a show coming up next. We've got Sean Stevens on. Now, Sean is a lighting director for theater here in Toronto. And uh, I, I think it's very interesting to get Sean's perspective on how to light and set up uh, theater in the round. So when we're talking of one of the challenges in VR is you know, how to direct the audience to look a certain way or how to change the perspective of the audience and maybe focus on one thing and then zoom them out and focus on it. These are challenges that theater has been working on and working with for hundreds of years. So to have a, a technical theater director on the show, I think it's going to be of particular interest for VR uh, uh, directors who are thinking about how to block out shots that uh, y- you don't have the, 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 the luxury of having a locked-off camera anymore like, like we used to or we do in film. So I'm very much looking forward to having Sean on. Vincent, thanks again for joining us, and uh, we will talk to you folks all next. Stay subscribed if you have any feedback, and we really appreciate the feedback you've been sending so far. Twitter's the best way for us, rd.xyz, A-R-D-E-E dot X-Y-Z on Twitter. My name is Rick Delishney. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. <laughs>